Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Josh Levine, Assistant Professor of Neurology and Chief of the Neurointensive Care Unit at the University of Pennsylvania. The management of traumatic brain injury continues to evolve and has morphed from preventing secondary brain injury based on systemic hemodynamic monitoring to use of invasive monitors designed to continuously measure brain metabolism and other systemic interventions designed to ameliorate the sequela of injury. Today, I hope to discuss the ICU management of traumatic brain injury with Dr. Levine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Let's start by putting a historical perspective on the management of TBI. How has ICU management evolved in the last 10 or 15 years? In my mind, there have really been three areas of advancement over the past one to two decades. The first advance was standardization of management according to evidence-based guidelines. The first version of the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines emerged in the late 90s. These were really the first authoritative guidelines based on scientific evidence and not on expert opinion. The impetus for these guidelines was twofold. First, it became clear from animal and human studies that all neurological injury does not occur at the time of impact, but rather much of it occurs over the ensuing hours to days. This concept of delayed or secondary neurological injury was important because it meant that brain injury continues to occur in the ICU and really represents a therapeutic target. Second, it became clear that there was gross heterogeneity in clinical practice. These two realizations made the creation of guidelines imperative. In the years since, the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines have undergone multiple revisions, and studies have confirmed both increased adherence to these guidelines over time and better clinical outcomes. A second major advance is the growing use of multiple simultaneous methods of monitoring brain physiology. There's really been an explosion of technology that has made cerebral physiology accessible, often in real time at the bedside, in ways that was impossible in years past. In addition to monitoring ICP and CPP, it is now possible to monitor global and regional oxygenation, cerebral blood flow, cerebral autoregulation, and even brain biochemistry. A third significant change has been the emergence of neurocritical care as a defined subspecialty of critical care, which focuses exclusively on management of patients with severe injury to the nervous system. It is becoming increasingly frequent for patients with brain injury, including TBI, to be called in super-specialized intensive care units, neuro-ICUs, and to be managed by a specialized team of nurses and physicians who are trained in neurocritical care. There's emerging evidence that for a variety of types of brain injury, outcomes may be better when patients are cared for by specialists. Neurocritical care has blossomed in the last decade with the formation of the Neurocritical Care Society, the creation of board examination, and the emergence of multiple fellowship training programs across the country. All right, and let's take point number two, because I think that's the one that's probably most relevant to the, um, to the trauma practitioner. Point number two that you raised was the myriad of various monitoring capabilities that we now have in the unit. Um, I think it's fair to say that up until recently, the cornerstone was, maybe maybe even still is, uh, the CPP and the ICP. I mean, it's an ATLS. Everyone knows it. But there seems to be some pitfalls that led to the rise of these other monitoring systems. So one question I guess I have is, what are the downsides of good old-fashioned CPP, I ICP, and where does everything else fit in? 
That's a great question. Uh, you know, it's absolutely correct that current Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines recommend keeping the ICP less than 20 and the CPP greater than 50 millimeters of mercury. And this is really based on observations in large populations of trauma patients that an ICP of 20 is associated with poor outcome. And while this is true on average in large populations, it's not necessarily the best approach for each individual patient. It's very important to realize that one of the main goals of management is to provide sufficient blood flow to meet the metabolic demand of injured brain. It's difficult to determine whether this goal is being met when monitoring pressures, in other words, ICP and CPP alone, since as you pointed out, pressure is but one determinant of blood flow. It's become clear from studies of brain oxygen and brain metabolism that secondary injury occurs with alarming frequency despite optimization of ICP and CPP. So in other words, you can have an ICP monitor in and the ICP is less than 20 and the CPP is around 60 or 70, but secondary injury can still occur. This concept is the primary rationale for monitoring some of the other cerebral physiologic variables that we previously spoke about. The approach that many are adopting is to use measures of cerebral oxygenation, biochemistry, and autoregulation to individualize optimal ICP and CPP ranges for each particular patient. This approach is logically appealing, but should ultimately be subjected to rigorous scientific scrutiny. And I want to spend some time talking about the, the other modalities that are um, oxygen monitors in particular, but before we get to that, Let's just stick with the CPP-ICP issue for a second. What are some of the mechanical even pitfalls that I need to watch out for when I look at the number 50 or 20? Yeah, this is an interesting question. You know, we just spent some time talking about physiological pitfalls and using ICP and CPP alone to manage patients. But it should be pointed out that there are also technical issues that people need to be aware of. It seems fairly straightforward that cerebral perfusion pressure is the mean arterial pressure minus the intracranial pressure. However, it turns out there's variability in practice when it comes to how MAP is actually measured for this calculation. Some place the arterial pressure transducer at the level of the heart the way one would in most ICU patients. However, others place the transducer at the level of the head to better capture arterial pressure in the cerebral vessels. Now, if the patient is lying flat, it really makes no difference which method is used since the head and the heart are at the same level. However, if the patient is being nursed with head of bed upright or at any angle greater than zero, map at the heart and map at the head are not the same. For example, on a six-foot-tall person with the head of the bed at 45 degrees, the difference in map may be about 14 millimeters of mercury when measured by the two different techniques. This might actually be clinically significant. Our group recently surveyed not only U.S. neurointensive care units, but also the authors of the studies included in the Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines that established our current CPP threshold to see which methods were used. And to our dismay, we found considerable variability in technique. We recently presented these findings at the Neurocritical Care Society meeting and are currently preparing it for publication. So it really turns out that even just a simple CPP is not so straightforward. It really depends on how you measure it. And, and that calls into question a couple things, I suppose. Your, your, your um, survey study, which is very interesting. Is it possible that 50 is not the final answer and 20 is not the final answer because everyone's measured it variably? 
Well, you know, I don't think our survey answers that question, but it would seem like that's a real possibility. And I think the, you know, in the future, we're going to have to move towards a more individualized approach for each patient to find the optimal ICP and CPP based on other physiologic variables that more accurately represent the health of brain tissue. All right, so with that, let's kind of move on a little bit. Um, and, and I guess the one final caveat about ICP, CPP I will throw out there is that they make the assumption that there is very little autoregulation occurring in the injured brain because we're making the assumption that a pressure equals flow. And as the brain recovers or is variably injured, that assumption may or may not be valid. That's absolutely correct. So, you know, blood flow is proportional to pressure and to the radius of the blood vessels raised to the fourth power. So in a normal person, the main determinant of flow is not pressure, but it's the vascular diameter. And normally this diameter changes dynamically or autoregulates. And it's, while it's true that in traumatic brain injury, autoregulation may be impaired, it may be impaired in, regionally, uh, in, in ways that vary regionally across the brain, or it may not be impaired at all. And so only if autoregulation is completely constant or absent is pressure equal to flow. And so we'd previously talked about um, cerebral brain oxygen monitoring with Dr. Peter LaRue in one of our previous podcasts and uh, the role of the Lycox catheter for that particular podcast. What about measuring global cerebral oxygenation via jugular venous bulb catheter, not necessarily regional oxygenation via the Lycox catheter? Right. I think that measuring jugular venous oxygen saturation is a potentially powerful tool for managing patients with a whole variety of brain injuries, including trauma. Uh, the, the saturation of jugular, venous, uh, of jugular venous blood is proportional to cerebral blood flow and inversely proportional to the metabolic rate of the brain tissue. What this means is it's one of the only tools available at the bedside that provides a real-time assessment of whether blood flow to the brain is sufficient to meet metabolic demands. Now, there are lots of ways of measuring blood flow, but it's very difficult to interpret what blood flow means unless you know what metabolic demand is. And SJVO2, or the saturation of jugular venous oxygen, is really the only tool that allows us to do this. Now, I have to point out that it's generally appropriate in disease states that affect the brain globally, such as diffuse TBI, but a jugular bulb catheter and SJVO2 is much less useful in focal neurologic diseases like ischemic stroke or maybe even trauma patients whose major injury is a very focal area of contused brain. Uh, so measuring jugular venous oxygen saturation may help to optimize cerebral blood flow in patients with severe diffuse injury. Okay, and so that then raises another point of utility of both a regional cerebral oxygen monitor and a global one, the Lycox versus the SJO2. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, I think everybody's very excited about the multitude of monitors currently available to assess brain physiology, but we really don't know what the optimal combination of monitors is, and it may be that some patients require both global and focal monitors. Uh, some require just one or the other, and I think at this point in time, it really is an individualized decision based on what the patient's path pathology is. 
If there is a lot of focal injury, it may pay to place focal monitors, but for fairly diffuse diseases, it may pay to use global monitors. Okay. However which way one goes about monitoring, we need to talk about the therapeutic side, I suppose. Um, frequently, we transfuse blood as a means to improve oxygen delivery. And I've seen uh, at least one or two articles from your group to that effect. Is there a role for transfusion therapy for TBI to improve O2 delivery to the brain? And if so, how do we determine when a patient needs to be transfused? Well, that's a really tough question to answer. What seems to be clear from the literature is that the injured brain does not tolerate anemia to the same extent as a healthy brain. However, in general, transfusion seems to be associated with worse outcomes in general critical care populations. So at this point, what we know is that anemia is bad and transfusion may be bad. And to date, there are no large trials that have established the optimal transfusion threshold in patients with traumatic brain injury. In my neuro ICU, we use a restrictive transfusion policy and transfuse once hemoglobin levels fall below seven. Uh, this is obviously in a patient who's not actively bleeding. Uh, however, I suspect that there's considerable variability in practice across neuro ICUs. And what we don't know is whether the systemic side effects of transfusion uh, outweigh the risks to the brain of anemia or vice versa. So it's really an open question that has not yet been answered. But what about the patient who's got a low O2 level, either by SJO2 or by cerebral oxygen monitor, Lycox catheter, um, and maybe even that patient's ICP can be high or not high. What about how do you how do you individualize your transfusion therapy aside from just hemoglobin trigger seven? Well, we do use blood in that situation, but usually as a last resort. Uh, when we see problems with oxygenation or metabolism, usually our first efforts are directed towards improving blood flow through raising blood pressure uh, or other means. But if the uh, hypoxia seems to be refractory to first-tier therapies, we will resort to transfusion of blood as a, a last-tier therapy. And we do it one unit at a time, and we observe the effects on cerebral physiology of the first unit of blood. And if it seems to make a difference, uh, then we may transfuse another unit. Uh, but if it seems to worsen the problem, as it sometimes does, then we will, no, we will not transfuse additional units of blood. And you said that's your last year for all the risks you know, inherent therein. What are some of the first years? Can I just turn up the FiO2? Well, you know, uh, turning up the FiO2, if you're talking about a Lycox monitor or, or a regional uh, oxygen monitor, it, it often does increase the partial pressure of oxygen in the interstitium of the brain. Uh, and, you know, there's no standard method for how to address a low brain O2. We feel that turning up the FiO2 should probably not be the first choice of therapies because... As we know, uh, oxygen in high inspired concentrations can cause worsening lung injury, and it likely isn't addressing the primary problem, which is usually not a problem of oxygen uh, uh, of oxygenation through the lungs, but is usually a problem with blood flow or maybe even diffusion of oxygen from the vessel into brain tissue. So our first tier therapies are. Uh, you almost always directed at trying to correct the underlying cause. And if we feel the underlying cause is poor perfusion, 
will do things that increase perfusion, like lower the ICP. Sometimes if the ICP is 19, although it's technically below 20, we'll lower it even further because that will uh, potentially augment cerebral blood flow. We'll raise blood pressure uh, and we'll, we'll do things like that to, to augment blood flow before we increase the FiO2. Uh, obviously, in an emergency situation where there's profound hypoxemia, we'll temporize by raising the FiO2, but we don't think that's a, a good durable uh, therapy. All right, excellent. And so ultimately, the underlying cause in all of these types of things is some degree of cerebral edema, uh, as opposed to, say, a subarachnoid patient where you have to worry about vasoreactivity, et cetera. We're talking about cerebral edema, by and large, with a trauma patient. What's the role for steroids? Let's just drop the edema. Well, the short answer to your question is that there is no role for steroids. Uh, steroids have been used for decades to treat people with trauma. Uh, and in fact, one survey of intensive care management of TBI patients in the U.S. reported that steroids were used in 64% of trauma centers in the management of TBI. There have been multiple studies that have looked at the role of steroids, but at the best available data come from the corticosteroid randomization after significant head injury, or CRASH trial. This was a massive multicenter randomized trial. It was published in The Lancet in 2004 and included over 10,000 adults with TBI who were randomized to either methylprednisolone or placebo. And the group randomized to treatment with steroids had a higher mortality. At this point in time, steroids really should not be used routinely either for prophylaxis or to treat cerebral edema in patients with TBI. All right. Steroids are out. Hypothermia. <laughs> There's a long history of interest in hypothermia as a treatment strategy for TBI, and it's really been used as far back as at least the 1800s. And interest has really waxed and waned over time as clinical experience and technology have advanced. I want to make it clear that there are really two separate and distinct possible applications of hypothermia in the TBI population. The first is as a neuroprotective strategy. Uh, this is where you would apply hypothermia early or prophylactically with the goal of improving neurological outcome. The second is purely as a therapy for intracranial hypertension. And in this case, hypothermia is applied in response to elevated ICP purely to lower it. And I'll discuss each of these indications separately because I think it's important not to confuse the two. So as a prophylactic or neuroprotective therapy in TBI, hypothermia has really fallen out of favor. Despite promising preclinical or animal studies and single-center human clinical studies, multi-center randomized controlled trials have so far failed to demonstrate benefit. In 1994, the uh, National Institutes of Health funded NABISH, the National Acute Brain Injury Study Hypothermia. This was a randomized multi-center study led by Guy Clifton, and it was stopped after enrolling about 390 patients when an interim analysis showed a low probability of detecting a treatment effect. Between 2000 and 2010, multi multiple meta-analyses were performed, the vast majority of which suggested that prophylactic hypothermia was of no benefit. In 2008, a study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that was an international randomized multicenter trial of hypothermia 
in 225 ch children with TBI, and not only did hypothermia fail to improve functional outcome, but it was also associated with increased mortality. Finally, Guy Clifton conducted a second randomized multicenter study of hypothermia in adults with TBI, NABISH-2, which was also terminated due to futility after only 97 patients were enrolled. This study was published uh, this year in Lancet Neurology. So taken all together, the literature really doesn't support the routine use of hypothermia as a prophylactic strategy to improve neurological outcome. However, uh, I mentioned before there's another indication for hypothermia, and that's as a treatment for intracranial hypertension. And the vast majority of studies, and there are uh, probably close to 20 of them, suggest that hypothermia really does effectively reduce ICP. So currently, I think that hypothermia is a very reasonable treatment for intracranial hypertension, but shouldn't be used routinely upfront for trauma patients. And what about mortality outcome for the last point you just brought up, lowering the ICP by using hypothermia? Do we know, does that have a mortality benefit? We don't know that. And in fact, it's quite possible that it, it doesn't. And all we know is that it reduces intracranial hypertension. So, you know, I don't think that hypothermia should be viewed as a, a brain-saving uh, uh, therapy in trauma at least, but it should be viewed as one option for lowering uh, intracranial pressure. All right. So let me just summarize for a second. Steroids are out. We have a little bit of a question mark over hypothermia. It lowers That's the number, right. but maybe the number's pretty and the patient doesn't do so well. Anyway, let's just go to the surgical meat of the matter and take the skull off and lower the ICP. So how do we take this moment now and talk about the DECRA trial? Okay. Well, uh, the DECRA trial uh, was published this year in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, it was a trial of decompressive craniectomy uh, for severe refractory uh, intracranial hypertension. Uh, in this trial, uh, patients with severe diffuse TBI and intracranial hypertension that failed to respond to first-tier medical therapies were randomized to bifrontal decompressive craniectomy plus medical management uh, or to medical management alone. And we should mention people with bleeds specifically were excluded from the study. Yes. People with focal injuries like contusions were, were specifically excluded from this study. Contusions, subdural hematomas, epidural hematomas. That whole population was excluded. And they did this study to test the hypothesis that bifrontal craniectomy or surgery for trauma patients is associated with an improved long-term uh, functional outcome. And they measured this by using the extended Glasgow outcome scale. Now, the trigger for surgery in the interventional group was an ICP of greater than 20 for more than 15 minutes despite medical therapy. And the authors found that while patients who received surgery spent less time with intracranial hypertension, had fewer interventions to treat ICP, had a decreased duration of mechanical ventilation, and a shorter ICU length of stay, they had worse functional outcomes than those who received standard medical therapy. They did worse. So this result, that craniectomy was associated with worse outcomes, was shocking uh, to many of us. Uh, particularly since craniectomy has already been shown to improve functional outcome in other diseases like massive ischemic stroke. 
so I, I think, simply put, there are two possible explanations for what's going on here. Uh, the first is that craniectomy actually does not improve outcome, uh, like the trial suggests. And the second uh, possible explanation is that it does improve outcome, but due to design flaws in the study, this study failed to show it. So let's address the first possibility first, uh, that craniectomy does not improve outcome. And, you know, I think this is entirely possible. We had all been hopeful uh, about this trial, really because of the clinical observation that craniectomy definitively reduces ICP. And as you know, it makes ICU management much, much easier. You take the skull off and you're basically done. There's no more mannitol, there's no more hypertonic saline. Um, but as we touched upon earlier in our conversation, ICP is really a poor surrogate for cerebral blood flow and overall brain tissue health and viability. And it's possible that this trial just underscores the notion that management of ICP and CPP alone are not necessarily sufficient and that secondary injury may occur despite, quote, normal, unquote, ICP and CPP. Because here we have a therapy, craniectomy, that's extremely good at reducing ICP, but doesn't improve outcomes. So that's the first possibility, that the trial uh, reflects reality and that, that craniectomy just doesn't work. Now let's talk about the second possibility, that surgery really does work, but this trial failed to demonstrate it. And every trial has flaws, and DECRA is no exception. Uh, you know, first, baseline characteristics of the two groups, the control group and the interventional group, were imbalanced in, uh, in a very important way. The surgery group had significantly more subjects with absent pupillary light reflexes, uh, which may indicate that they were more severely injured. And if this is true, it may have biased the study in favor of medical therapy. And in fact, the authors of the study recognized this problem and performed a post hoc adjustment for this variable and when this was done, the association between craniectomy and worse functional outcome was no longer statistically significant. So that's one possible flaw of the study. Uh, second, um, surgery was performed in this trial if medical therapy had failed after only 15 minutes. And this is fairly aggressive, and I venture to say that most intensivists and surgeons would give medical therapy longer than 15 minutes to work. And so the study may not faithfully represent the use of craniectomy in real life practice. Uh, third, as you pointed out earlier, this study only enrolled a minority of patients with severe brain injury. Uh, it took seven years and close to 3,500 patients screened to enroll 155 uh, patients or to randomize 155 patients and not included in this study were patients with focal mass lesions. So it is possible that craniectomy may benefit those with mass lesions. And, you know, uh, finally, another possible reason for trial failure is that there are multiple types of craniectomy surgeries, and this trial looked at one particular technique. So the results of this trial. Uh, can't necessarily be generalized to other types of craniectomy. Uh, there is another trial of craniectomy, which I should mention, Rescue ICP, that is currently enrolling subjects. Uh, this is a prospective, randomized, international, multi-center study, and it should provide additional information about the efficacy of surgery. We're all eagerly anticipating its completion. You know, <clears throat> I certainly hope that 
the first uh, point that you raised is not going to be the truth. That is to say that ICP control, direct ICP control doesn't matter because that really calls into question pretty much everything we do in the ICU in regards to the traumatic brain injured patient and, and the beginnings of our conversations today. I do appreciate you raising all the um, shortcomings of the study because I think that it really does take an astute reader to bring those points out and realize that the trial mostly is not applicable to the average patient uh, in the trauma intensive care unit. Well, let's switch gears uh, a little bit. Thus far, we've been talking about ICP control and management of the ICP and uh, perfusion pressures. Let's change gears and focus now on uh, the sequela of traumatic brain injury that occurs days to weeks following the injuries. Now the patient's been in the ICU for a few days. Can you comment on sympathetic storming? What is it? What causes it? What do I, how do I go about treating it? Sure. Uh, sympathetic <coughs> storm is a, a tough clinical problem. Um, sympathetic storm or dysautonomia, it goes by multiple, multiple names in the literature, uh, occurs after severe TBI and other forms of severe brain injury and consists of very dramatic paroxysmal autonomic nervous system and muscle overactivity. The classic signs are self-limited bouts of profuse sweating, tachycardia, hypertension, tachypnea, fever, extreme agitation, uh, and extensor posturing. Uh, clinically, it can actually resemble other states of autonomic hyperactivity like neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome. And management is very difficult uh, in part because the pathophysiology is really very poorly understood. Uh, most people think that it's a type of disconnection, disconnection syndrome. And what I mean by that is that there are certain neural structures which stimulate the autonomic nervous system and in normal people, they are inhibited by other nervous system structures. And when the inhibitory centers become disconnected from the stimulatory centers, you sort of get out of control stimulation of the autonomic nervous system. And the exact details of which centers are inhibitory and which centers are excitatory really is a subject of debate and is not known. Now, in terms of management, numerous, numerous medications have been tried for symptomatic control. Uh, currently, morphine and beta blockers are the mainstay of therapy. Uh, dopamine agonists, benzodiazepines, clonopin and baclofen may also be useful. And gabapentin seems to be useful for long-term control. There are very promising preliminary data suggesting that for very severe refractory cases, intrathecal baclofen may be extremely effective. Uh, and once signs and symptoms are under control, medications can be tapered, but it has to be done very slowly, very carefully. These symptoms often come back during the taper, and treatment is often prolonged for uh, weeks to, to sometimes months at a time. What other uh, items are on the differential when you're trying to evaluate someone for sympathetic storm? Well, as I mentioned, other forms of autonomic hyperactivity like malignant hyperthermia and serotonin syndrome, but uh, at least some of the phases of this syndrome can often uh, mimic uh, withdrawal from either alcohol or benzodiazepines, and certainly we use a lot of benzodiazepines in the ICU, so disentangling symptoms of withdrawal from autonomic hyperactivity from TBI can be very, very difficult, and as anyone who's managed a trauma patient knows agitation uh, often accompanies TBI, 
And so if agitation is the salient feature, it's very difficult to disentangle agitation from TBI from uh, this syndrome. So, you know, it has a, a fairly broad differential diagnosis, and this is really a diagnosis of exclusion. Over time, the diagnosis tends to become more apparent as the patient suffers repeated bouts uh, of autonomic hyperactivity. So as our time now is uh, progressing, I thought we'd um, <clears throat> start summarizing some of the really important uh, things we've been talking about. What are some of the key components that a clinician needs to focus upon when treating a severely brain injured patient? Well, uh, I think that it's important to remember that treating a severely brain injured patient begins with sound general critical care um, and includes on top of that monitoring of brain physiology. Uh, I think if we know one thing about traumatic brain injury, it's that hypotension is deleterious. So hypotension should be diligently avoided. Uh, optimizing ICP and CPP are currently standard of care, uh, but the field is really shifting towards multimodality neuromonitoring that will allow a plethora of additional physiological variables to be optimized. And as you um, look ahead, uh, what promising new therapies do you think you can conjecture on? Well, um, I'm going to answer that question not with spe specific therapies, but instead with some <clears throat> key concepts that are emerging or have recently emerged that I think will really shape the future management of TBI patients. Uh, the first key principle is that there is such variability in physiology from patient to patient that applying population-derived physiological target ranges to individual patients uh, really may fall out of favor eventually. Instead, I think that care is going to be individualized. Uh, advanced monitoring tools will really allow us to determine for each patient the optimal ICP, CPP, cerebral blood flow, uh, et cetera. Uh, the second key principle is that there are over 200 failed trials of neuroprotective drugs for TBI, and that's why I'm not going to go out on a limb and tell you a specific therapy that I think is going to emerge, but I think it's dawning on us that because the cellular and molecular cascades involved in secondary injury are so complex and redundant that therapies that target a single pathway really don't work and, and will no longer be sought, and I think in the future the focus may be on broad-spectrum therapy, therapies or combinations of therapies or bundles that target multiple pathways. And I really think that there's not going to be a single magic bullet. And uh, lastly, I'm hopeful that as the field of neurocritical care evolves, we will see a, a parallel increase in quality of care for TBI patients, which hopefully will translate into improved outcomes. So those are really... I think what I see on the horizon in the near future for TBI management. And those are those are excellent points you raised, and it really uh, brings up a point of the role of evidence-based medicine in regards to the first thing you said, which was the need to individualize uh, or customize the therapies, particularly as we become more and more detail-oriented, not looking at global pressure, uh, but rather regional oxygenation or couple that with pressure, something to that effect, what will happen to all the paradigms in critical care and trauma care in general as we now start becoming more individualized with our, um, with our studies and with the um, therapies that we employ? 
Well, that was a fascinating talk, and I want to thank you for your time. Uh, we've been speaking today with Dr. Josh Levine regarding the management of traumatic brain injury in the ICU. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Babak Sarani.